You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. G'day listeners, this is your voiceover guy dropping in to deliver your ears a sweet treat. Our podcast host Steph has currently lost her voice, so I'll be doing the intro for today's episode. Tracy Hayes is best known for her role as the first female CEO of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, but it was a role she never intended on holding. In fact, it wasn't in her career plan at all. Born and bred on a cattle station in the far north of South Australia, staying on the land was all Tracy ever wanted to do. But sometimes life throws curveballs, and when that happens, you have two choices resist change or adapt. And as you'll hear in this episode, adapting to the unexpected is something Tracy does very well. Keeping true to form, Steph began the conversation by asking Tracy what she was like as a child. I wasn't really one to stay at home. I mean, I'm the only girl in the family and uh, mum and I were often the only female on the property and um, I think it came as a great disappointment to my parents that I just, uh, in some ways, that I wasn't the type to want to stay at home and, and um, muck about with uh, dolls and things like that. So really um, my childhood was really blessed with lots of time playing with my brothers outdoors, climbing trees. We had a a really large waterhole out the front of the homestead and I, th- I think back now to the freedom and the liberties that we had as children and how many hours and hours and hours we would spend down in that creek hunting and collecting bush tucker and, you know, swimming in the waterhole and doing any number of things. So, yeah, really uh, active outdoors childhood, I'd say. I would say we were pretty well-behaved kids, brought up in a, an environment, you know, manners were everything and respecting your elders and, and you know, it's you, real children and we behaved as such, but also a little personality that was very strong and determined and wanted to be considered pretty well the same as my brothers and, and have the opportunities to do what they were doing the same. So, you know, we're talking 40-odd plus years ago, so it was uh, a little out of the norm back then, I think. I've heard that you were supposed to go to boarding school in Adelaide, but your brothers all went to Alice Springs and you eventually convinced your parents to let you go to Alice Springs. What was your strategy to get them to do that? How did you approach that situation? Well, when you live where we were based, it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, to be honest. And in um, the Stuart Highway was a really rough dirt road and getting anywhere was tricky. So Alice Springs was eight hours or so north. Adelaide was a 10 to 12 hours south. So 
from a logistics perspective, is actually really difficult having us kids um, separated for education purposes. So, you know, just from a common sense perspective, that was uh, that was one of my uh, arguments. But um, really, at the end of the day, uh, we were pretty close, and I just wanted to be with my brothers. And I think Mum and Dad accepted that I'd be a lot happier if uh, if I was able to uh, be educated with them. So it sounds like you were quite strategic and came at it from a, a point of view with logic rather than throwing tanties, making threats, you know, because I'm just thinking there's so many ways you could have gone about this. And the reason I asked is as an adult, you are known within industry. You're in, you've been in various and you do hold various leadership roles, but you're very articulate and I would say a force to be reckoned with, but, and excuse the pun, this just came to me and I'm quite proud of it. I wouldn't say that you're like Cyclone Tracy, you know, you know, some people just come in, they're loud, they make a lot of noise, they leave destruction behind them, but they still get what they want. I feel like you're kind of the opposite. You're very good at achieving what you need to achieve, but with grace and presence mm-hmm. and I guess strategy. So I was just wondering as a child, it sounds like you were kind of the same back then. Yeah, it's interesting observation. I think I tend to approach most challenging situations and, and even now, um, from a practical common sense perspective and, and, uh, and then try and find a way to work through the issues. And, you know, there's generally always a way. You've just got to take the time to think it through, think of the impact on others around you and on the decisions that you're making. So it, it just made sense. The, State liner Greyhound bus was the only method of public transport between where my parents would sort of join the Stuart Highway and, uh, and boarding school. So from a logistics perspective, it was, would have been very, very difficult. So it just made sense. Mum and dad would drive to the Indulkana. Uh, I think it was called the Chandler Siding in those days, which is where Granite Downs peels off the Stuart Highway, and we'd meet the Greyhound bus there, and then they'd put us on the bus there, and then we'd head north. And you know, I, I suffered dreadfully from homesickness in the first year or two, so it was a great comfort having my brothers there, and it was totally the right decision for mum and dad to acquiesce and <laughs> let me go with them. If your parents had plans for you to go to a different school to your brothers because you were a girl and that's just what was done in those days, does that mean they had certain intentions for you when you finished school? Did they have a career path in mind for you? Yes. Well, I I think perhaps not so much a career path, but they certainly didn't see me as wanting to come back on the land or, you know, bang a jillaroo. We never called them jillaroos then. It was station hand. It was actually an insult. We called a, a jillaroo or a jackaroo. Uh, so it was either a ringer or a station hand. And that's how I saw myself. And that was what I wanted to be doing. But it also had a healthy dose of reality where where a lot of, you know, young girls and women in the bush tended not to do that. They would go off and do other things. So that was, I think, the plans that, that mum and dad had for me was send me to a ladies' college and then who knows where it would lead. And what were your plans for when you were, I guess, when you were in school and what you thought you were going to do when you finished? Also, I guess, noting that you met your future husband while you were at school. Yeah, so... My plans were always wanting to find a way to go back and work on the property and it was just there was always a, a bit of a, a tension there because in the back of my mind I knew that 
that wasn't the done thing and would have been very difficult, as well as I had two brothers. So it was most almost certain that uh, one of my brothers would have uh, would have continued on in dad's footsteps and that's actually what ended up happening and uh, and um, I married Billy and and uh, ended up living on a station in any case but it so wasn't uh, you know exactly as I as I saw it but of course um, we know that you know this is life and things change along the way. What was your favorite part about station life? It was there I know you, obviously you ended up living there through marriage, but you wanted to be on the land and work on the land. What aspect of that work kind of called to you the most? Yeah, well, a possibly part of it uh, was it was all I knew because we were always very isolated and and uh, television and long you know telephone was difficult their communications weren't weren't great you know the royal flying doctor service radio was our only means of um connecting to the outside world often you know via a telegram so it was a life that i knew and i loved and um would you know and that's just how i saw myself i really didn't have aspirations to do anything else and uh certainly uh academic life or or going to university and that type of thing um i've spoken about it before it's um it was just not a thing. It, it was not discussed in, in our household and, and really it was, uh, mostly a practical approach to things, being, being useful, being good with your hands, being able to fix most things. Um, yeah. And being a hard worker. Definitely horses were a major part. So I was a real thorn in dad's side a lot of the time. I wanted to be a jockey and, um, he wasn't so keen on that and I uh, was pretty keen to, be, be allowed to compete so I had to wait until I was about 12 or 13 or so before uh, dad um, was of the view that you know would be allowed to uh, enter into gym carners and, and race meetings and things but um, but on the station we'd spend a lot of time um, you know doing track work on his racehorses we always had a nag or two that that uh, did the circuit of the bush race meeting. So it was, uh, Mari, William Creek, uh, Una Dada, and then in later years, um, I don't think we ever went as far as Glen Dambo, but, um, mostly those bush meetings. And, uh, yeah, so we generally had one or two, sometimes three horses on feed. And, uh, so they had to be ridden every day, sometimes twice a day. So us kids would, uh, often be called upon to do that. So, it um so horses I was very uh very attached to, which is not unusual for young girls, I think. Um and certainly out in the stock camp, uh being a part of the team with the horses was also something that um I saw as my role and really what I want wanted to be, you know, is the horse tailor. And that's uh you know, that's in the pecking order back in the day it you know, the horse tailor was someone that was considered pretty handy. They obviously needed to get out of bed before everybody else and, uh, and have a skill to be able to track horses, uh, in the night and, um, follow the sound of the bells and, and round them up. So, uh, that's what my aspirations were, was to end up the horse tailor and, uh, and being a part of the, of the crew that, you know, uh, added some value and cared for the plant. Did you get to live those aspirations of being the horse tailor or what was your role on the station? 
in the early 90s, uh, horses were really starting to be phased out. It's, it's funny how it's gone full circle because they're back now, which I think is great. But horses were slowly being phased out and as mechanization came in, so motorbikes and bull catchers and, and then later on aircraft. And, uh, Billy was a really good horseman and, uh, he had, and, and so was his dad and, uh, he had a great seat, but, I sort of came, joined the family at a time when when horses were slowly being phased out. So we didn't need to have a plant of horses and um, often, you know, they'd be, we'd have a truck and you'd be carting the horses around and the days of running, you know, You'd, you'd ride a horse till lunchtime and then you'd change your horse and have a fresh one in the afternoon were well and truly gone. You know, you wouldn't be riding long distances to get to the site that you were mustering because you most likely had a body truck or something to cart them out there. So infrastructure had started to be installed. It was after the BTEC days. There was a lot more fencing, a lot more yards and, uh, yeah, a lot more, um, I, I guess, structure to the working day. So pretty well a move away from Bronco branding, which was all of my childhood cattle were branded out in the flat and uh, it was all Bronco branding. Whereas uh in it throughout my marriage years it was in a yard with a with a calf cradle and, and uh so we'd moved to the mechanisation. There's still a number of annual Bronco branding events in northern South Australia, uh some in Queensland and and there has been in Alice on and off the last few years. I want to start a petition that we get Tracy to compete in a Bronco branding. <laughs> I've had a couple of goes uh, when I was younger. My cousin is uh, he is right into it now, and he's a gun. So if you're listening, uh, Cole Greenfield. Oh, is that your cousin? Yeah, Cole's been on the podcast. Yeah, I've uh, I've listened to oh his podcast. Oh my goodness! Yes, so uh, I love uh, keeping track of uh, of the team and Cole's movements with Bronco branding, but it was a major thing in my family. Um, my dad was a national champion for a little while, he and his crew, and they were, they were Unidata boys on his team. It was, uh, I, my memory serves me correct. It was Grant McSparren, Gary Birchmore, and Bobby Hunter. And, uh, which, you know, Heather Hunter, it's her. Oh. Yeah. I actually met Bobby last year. Or the year before out at Dolkin Inner Station and I'm dying to get him on the podcast and he was just a delightful man. Yes. What yeah. a small world. Yeah, small world. So and the championships were in Alice Springs, so it would have been gosh, I'm struggling with the year, but I just can picture now um my mum has a massive uh, photo of them all lined up with their with their blue ribbon on and dad was on a big chestnut bronco horse that is a lovely old nag and uh, could pull like mad, you know, and they just pull the sort of strong calves up to the cradle. So, yeah, some great memories. Is it is it five in a team, like two on horses and three on the ground, or would it be six? It's usually one on a horse and three on the ground. Okay, I was just thinking um, there might maybe there must be like a doubles category or something then, because I've seen two people go on horses at once. Uh just thinking, I know where you can find it, four people to help you out. You've got four strapping <laughs> sons, and you know if we have you on a horse because you don't need to be pulling. Giant. Oh, it depends. Uh, one of the ones I went to, the cattle were huge, and I was like, "There's no way I'd be able to tip one of those." But okay, this is going to be my new mission. We're going to get the Hayes mob back together. Luke, Tom, Sam, Harry, if you're listening, 
yeah. time to uh, pull out your saddles. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like a bit of fun. I've, uh, you know, it's great to see the sport has survived because, you know, obviously people don't use Bronco branding anymore as a, as a way of operating their businesses, but it's a great Norden legacy to the bush. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, there's some pretty capable girls that, uh, get out there now. And, you know, I've seen a few swinging on a Bronco rope and, uh, it's really great to see. I've definitely swung on a rope, did not catch anything, but you know what? It's a very inclusive community and they'll coach you through it the whole time. So yeah. All right. Okay. Well, you've just given me something to plan for. Yeah. Yeah. It's watch this space, everyone. It's going to happen. Watch this space. I think my, uh, I'm not sure how useful I would be, but, uh, certainly, um, when I was, it just sort of reminded me then as we're speaking about Bronco branding, um, I was pretty fascinated with constructing Bronco ropes as a child out of green hide. And I still, uh, I still have one hanging here in Darwin in, in, in the shed. It cops a bit of, uh, of lanolin from time to time because it, it's, the tropics aren't, aren't great for it. But again, that's another skill that we don't, you know, was kind of losing in the bush these days, but yeah, dad used to spend, you know, we'd, we'd get a killer and, and he overlanded, take great care in uh, making sure that we didn't put any nicks in the hide. So we'd bring the hide home and peg it out and salt it. And then, yeah, it was a really long and detailed process of uh, making a green hide bronco rope. So yeah, some great memories. All right, that's a yep. Watch this space, everyone. It's it's going to happen. <laughs> now, speaking of skills that you have, a little birdie, also known as your firstborn child, told me that you're a pilot. Yes, I uh, I certainly used to be. So when Billy first uh, started to fly, because it you know became apparent that having aircraft in the bush was such a useful tool, and uh, I mean people have been flying for years that live in the bush and handy for getting from A to B and uh, so he'd been flying for quite some time and I probably a reluctant um, flyer I would say and um, so we decided that it was a bit of a if you can't sort of beat them join them kind of approach where I, I felt that if I learned how to fly I would understand you know the aviation a lot better and the risk side of flying a lot, a lot better. You know, it was absolutely right. So once you are a pilot and you understand how aircraft work and, and I guess the joys of flying, you know, it really, um, was a game changer for me. So I never used to stress as much once I knew myself how to fly. So I think, uh, Sam was, I was pregnant with Sam, uh, when I did my final navigation exam. I will never forget it because, uh, you're sitting here heavily pregnant and uh, it remind, reminds me of uh, myself. It was, uh, I was about eight months and not the best time to be doing uh, uh, an aviation exam in a little 172 bumping. It was hot as hell and rough as guts if I'm completely honest and we flew out to uh, Yulara and back and um, yeah, I was really glad to get out of that aircraft that day but yeah, over the years, it's, uh, uh, I did a bit of flying from time to time, but, um, I don't have any need for it now. So I've let my license lapse and, uh, I've often thought about getting current again. And yeah, if ever there's a need, well, I can, I can always do that. I just, I'm just imagining you there in this plane because you are, you are a petite frame. You're not the tallest person and those aeroplanes, 
you kind of a regular person needs a booster seat anyway to see mm-hmm. out of them. When I'm driving at the moment, I have to recline my seat so that I don't get feet in my ribs. So I can just imagine you trying to, and then, you know, reach the pedals, see over the dash. I don't know how you reached the, did you call it controls? Like the little steering yep. wheel? Yeah. Yep. And, and all that while you've got a baby in there. Yeah. It, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do, but anyone that's, that is getting their pilot's license would appreciate that. You know, you've studied really hard. Mm. You just want to get the damn thing over and done with. Yeah. And I, I really felt I needed to nail it before, um, I gave birth and because it would have been difficult with a, with a newborn. Yeah. So I was pretty keen to get it done. Yeah. I mean, we survived it. It was fine, but it was probably in hindsight, I should have waited until it was a bit cooler. But anyhow, does, does the Sam get there sick? Uh, no, he's a, he's a pretty good aviator okay. and, uh, and he has aspirations himself to, uh, to be a pilot. So I dare say once he's finished it at uni, that'll be the path he heads down. Yeah. Okay. So all that time in the, in the womb, in the sky has obviously done him good, not turned him the other way. He's not been bounced around too much. Yeah. Well, that, the boys uh, have all loved flying with Billy. Of course, he spent, uh, thousands of hours in, in a fixed wing and then in later years in a helicopter. So, uh, all of the boys have, have flown a lot, um, over the years and, um, you know, it was, was just pretty easy. You'd strap a baby seat in the back seat of the plane and, and off with chuff. So it was just a great way to get around the bush if need be. Did Billy get his pilot's license for mustering purposes or was it for something else? I would say in the early days, it was a bit of both. So it takes you a while to build up your hours and, and be endorsed for low level flight and mustering. But certainly for checking waters, checking fence lines, keeping an eye on cattle and, and moving from A to B, it's pretty handy for that. And what about you? What did you use your flying for? Certainly not mustering. So it was really just a convenience thing in and out to town or occasionally flying around the waters or the bores and checking, uh, levels in tanks and things. Mostly the tanks were open and you could, uh, you could just, it was pretty easy, um, to flap around and, uh, check the, the dams and the tank levels and, and be sort of a bore run done and dusted. If you had to head into town with the kids in a motor car versus an airplane, were they better behaved in one or the other? Yeah, so I mostly just take one or two with me, never all of them. And often it would be if uh, it was a school day, particularly if I had a govy, it was a way that I could just quickly use us. Deep Wall's not that far out of Alice Springs and uh, the road used to be really rough. Uh, actually, I drove down it last Wednesday and uh, it's still pretty rough. There's a lot more bitumen now, but it's still pretty rough. So... I found having uh, 172 was quite a quick and easy trip from Deepwell into into Alice. Flying time was, you know, 20 minutes or so. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm just thinking of, you know, kids in the backseat going, are we there yet? Or can you stop? I have to go to the bathroom. Or, you know, when a parent turns around and says, if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to pull over and leave you on the side <laughs> of the road. don't know if you could really use that threat when you're in an airplane unless you say, I'm going to pop this window and <laughs> push you out. Yeah. No, it was uh, – there's plenty of that in a car, I can assure you of that, with uh, four boys and often, you know, keeping, um, stopping the bickering and the fighting and, you know, it was like, stop at the gate and it's like, well, if you don't stop fighting, you can walk home. It was, there was plenty of that over the years and yeah. certainly for myself and my brothers, it was also the same. Anybody who follows you now knows that you no longer live on a station and 
that came about from my understanding because as what happens with so many people do, after a very, very long period of time, you and Billy separated. And I, I wanted to ask you, I suppose, what that was like without being intrusive. But in an earlier episode we had last year, a woman named Libby kind of uh, introduced this concept of the difference between a rural divorce or a rural separation and an urban one. And I think it doesn't matter whether or not it's a, a couple or a family unit, but her her, her, you know, kind of, uh, concept was that if you're in town and there's a separation, you can still hopefully, you know, and somebody has to leave the family home or they both do, you can still have a house in that same suburb, same school, you know, not too much else has to change. But when you're on the land and somebody has to leave, you leave more than just that family home and that marriage. There's mm-hmm. often a, a career, um, a lifestyle, so many other things. And in Libby's case, she actually couldn't just move into the local town because it wasn't big enough to support a career and a family. She ended up moving two hours away and to the coast. It was a whole new world for her. So I was wondering how you, after being on the land your whole life, when it came time mm. to, to leave, it's not like you could just pop over to the station next door and set up camp there. How did you handle that transition? Yeah, I think we managed the transition fairly well. We had a business in Alice Springs and I still have it now some, you know, 15 odd years later. So, uh, and uh, as well as a, a home base. And so I think, uh, we stayed very close and, uh, it wasn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't a sort of a, a hard drop, if you like. So I think f- looking back, we managed the transition as well as we possibly could. Um, interesting, the career side of things. I'd, uh, yeah, I mean, I found myself you know, in my early forties and and didn't even have a CV. So it, uh, it, I really did need to dust myself off and and uh, reframe my thinking about, you know, because I hadn't really contemplated life, uh, any other type of life. To be honest, so from you know a professional career perspective, I you know really had to think about you know what what I what my next moves were going to be, and thankfully I'd spent quite a bit of time, you know, right throughout I I guess my married life in, with my nose in the books in one form or another. So I certainly had an interest in study, and it just naturally sort of evolved for me. I'd been in part of various committees and organisations and different sort of endeavours that were all related to industry or related to agriculture in some form or other. And, yeah, and it just uh, naturally progressed from there. I should clarify, I just realised for anyone listening, I I hope I don't, I'm not insinuating that an urban or a rural divorce that one is easier or harder than the other. But yeah, that, that career aspect is certainly again, another example of how they differ. If you're in the city and there's a separation, you generally don't have to find a new job or a new whole career path. Where did you get the motivation to study while you're, you know, a mum to four boys, which is four <laughs> children. Yeah. Keeps you busy. Four boys, especially four boys that are so active and outdoorsy. And then your role on the station. Some days I get home and I don't even know if I have the energy to shower and I'm not even on a station. Where do you find the motivation to study and what, what was it that you kind of dabbled in? 
I'd always had a thirst for knowledge and uh, I'm a detail person by nature. So I like to understand the inner workings and ins and outs of most things. So, you know, if you're curious by nature, you tend to then, you know, look into things. And it very sort of early on became apparent to me that if I'd been brought up in a city environment, I most likely would have gone to university, I think. It just as a young girl growing up in the bush, it just wasn't an option. So I, I guess it, I just sort of worked out that it was available to me. Distant learning for tertiary education was starting to become an, an option. Uh, you didn't need to go and live on campus in a university to study. So I enrolled myself in various things and uh so whether it be cdu or or um, university of queensland um there was uh, a few things that were being um, promoted and and offered to people that had uh, worked and lived in the bush and um so you sort of create an interest in whether it be a diploma of this or or a, um uh, i enrolled in a bachelor of business very early on and uh and made it through a few units. Unfortunately, I ended up with meningitis in between Tom and, and Sam and uh, just simply didn't, wasn't able to sort of keep going with it. But you know, I kept the books and kept going with it later on in life. So it was always uh, an area of interest that was related to the business or our family or, or um, sort of enhancing my ability to be able to contribute. So you were choosing very transferable useful skills you know you can use business skills in in the cattle station business or anywhere else like whereas I suppose if you had done English literature you know might not be as transferable to other yeah they were always uh they were always transferable so it was I was able to draw on my practical knowledge I guess and apply it in a tertiary space and you know sort of pretty well continue to do that I if it's an area of interest and uh and it's relatable. I, I, I think that you can find the time to um, commit to study. It's certainly not easy and I would often do it, you know, in the evenings and would always be, gosh, what are you thinking? And every time I finish something, I would think uh, that's the last time I'm <laughs> picking up a textbook, but I'd invariably line up for more. And, uh, yeah, so it was just a way of keeping um, my brain stimulated and, and uh, interested in, in sort of broadening horizons. So that's sort of how uh, I found my way there. Also, I uh, spent a lot of time in the classroom with the boys. So, you know, there was – you know, having uh, sort of an interest in education's always been a presence. What was the first job that you got when you left the station? Or well, the first non-station job, I should say. Well, uh, many years ago when I was at St. Philip's, I uh, had an after-school job. And, oh, is, uh, this, is this going where I think it's going? <laughs> this is the, yes. Oh, okay, yep, let's go here. <laughs> yeah, so there was a hairdressing salon in Alice Springs called Rag Doll. In the very early days, it was owned by uh, Ferris Trabusi was his name. It's a fancy salon, had a lot of staff. And, uh, and then in later years, Gail Tuxworth, took over the business and uh, she's a very lovely lady, very successful real estate agent now. I worked there after school and on Saturday mornings as a as a junior, so sweeping hair and uh, just helping out and doing any number of things. So it's good. Yes, and I think you know where I'm about to go with this and I don't know if we'll be able to deliver on this, uh, listeners, but 
again, a, a little birdie, also known as your first born son, uh, has, has shared that you had some very interesting hairdos back there, which I take great delight in because you are so, I was thinking of, I was like, how would I describe Tracy? And I was thinking, you know, like articulate, um, you know, leader. And then I was like, composed. She's just always so put together and composed and your hair just, it just looks, you know, we're in Darwin. Yes, it's the dry season, but this is not top end hair. Like it should be a frizzy <laughs> mess and it's not. So I love this idea of Tracy with like bleach tips and a perm and a big fringe and all that yeah, horrible that, 80s stuff. That was it. it and uh, it was perm, frosted hair, terrible, uh, must have, you know, chemical hair. It certainly was that. And uh, it was everywhere. And uh, as much height as we could get in our fringe, you know, the black silhouette hairspray back combing in the fringe it'd stick straight up <laughs> and uh yeah and of course the acid wash jeans and occasionally a tie-dye jumper to go with it uh-huh. do, do you remember those jumpers that you know you would touch and they would change color from the heat of your body no they were very big back that's then. cool yeah so you you know they come in bright colors bright green purple you know and it's like a mood ring but in a jumper yeah pretty much pretty much and you touch them and they change color so they were the height of fashion in Isle Springs back in the day, along with acid wash jeans. Don't forget those. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I feel like you and I are about to enter a bidding war because I will pay Luke whatever he asks if he digs through you. I was like, Luke, have you got any pictures? He's like, I think they're in like the family scrapbooks. Maybe there's some on Facebook. And I was like, if you find me one. <laughs> but And I can imagine now that you will probably also be like, Luke, whatever she's paying you, I'll double it. So oh, Luke's gosh. just probably about to come into some – some yeah. financial happiness between the two of us. <laughs> yeah, it's more than his life is worth. Yeah. <laughs> I just like to see it. I won't show anyone, but oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so, and and then obviously you you went back after that. So that was school, and then there was all this station life. You guys, you said you had you owned a business in town, which you still own. Is that where you went to work after the separation, or did you? I know. At some point, you ended up with the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, but was that your first sort of role after, or were you in the? Yeah, um, it's an equipment hire business, isn't it? Yes, that's right. It's uh, equipment, civil plant and equipment hire. Yes, yeah, so I'd been uh, actively involved in that uh, from when we bought it, and uh, and I'd also been on the board of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's and had been the Alice Springs branch chair. And the NTCA was expanding and growing and doing some really great work and they needed a, an executive officer and uh, the board approached me, the chairman at the time, and uh, asked if I'd be interested in considering that position, so moving uh, away from the board and onto the management staff. So that's how the transition happened and uh yeah, it was, uh, I really, uh, hit the ground running, found my feet. I was across the, the, uh, subject and the detail of the business only, uh, looking at it from a different perspective, really from a strategic and governance perspective as a board member. And then, uh, changed hats very quickly into more of a management hands on. And I found the transition, you know, relatively s- sort of smoothly I, I was able to uh, adapt and uh, and really enjoyed the role and I think once you enjoy 
um, something. You tend to, you know, really put your heart and soul into it. And of course, it meant a lot to me. The industry was really important to me and the community that uh, we lived and operated in was also really important to me. So it was just a, nat- uh, a natural sort of career path for me. What's the difference between the role of executive officer and chief executive officer? Yeah, level of responsibility. Like a, a chief executive officer really needs to not be um, down in the detail. You tend to need to be strategic and across a lot of the issues and be able to move very quickly and make hard decisions in a timely manner and be across all aspects of the of the business. An executive officer is really a sup- more of a supporting role and tends to get more involved in the detail and a lot of the doing and the daily grind. Yeah, so it's a it's a great transition into a CEO role. And anyone that's um, worked in senior management would, you know, understand that if uh, opportunities come up and people are in middle management now or in executive officer positions and the CEO role comes up, you know, it's from a board perspective, it's certainly worthwhile looking in the business and seeing what talent and skills you have there because it's it's generally a a, a nice transition. And when you came into this role. So talk about turbulent times. You know, you've got a, a few life changes going on. One of them, you know, moving into town, the, the separation, but also this was just a few months after the live export ban. Did you, you held that role from Alice Springs? Is that correct? Yeah. So it was a, the ban was a few months, a few months before. Yeah. So yes. And it was immediately after you know, we lost Billy's dad to it tragic accident so there you know 2011 it was a lot a lot happening and uh in our little family unfortunately um so i yeah took i was uh a board member when the ban happened and uh and then took over as executive officer later that year when the ban happened uh which obviously affected you know it's a live export ban cattle in central australia traditionally aren't geared towards a live export market, they go into a domestic supply chain. I think it can be easy to assume that it was only the very northern producers that do supply that live export market that were affected by that. But I know that ripple effect was felt throughout Australia, but most certainly throughout the entire pastoral industry. What was it like for you? You know, you were still on the station at that time. What are your memories from, I mean, I I suppose by being on the board of NTCA, you you might have had a, a day or two heads up that that news that that uh, four corners episode was going to come out. So you're there from the position of being a board member, but also a cattle producer with skin in the game. Yeah, so it was very interesting times. We we were aware of the story as Four Corners had been up to the territory and had interviewed uh, NTCA members and and our president Rowan Sullivan and and staff ahead of the Four Corner story going to air. But of course we didn't have any understanding of the of the footage that that aired that night. So we'd had uh we'd had a number of board meetings in the lead up to the program going to air and I distinctly remember um, sitting in the lounge room at Deepwell watching the program, you know, being like the rest of Australia, pretty sickened by some of the footage that we saw and then sort of automatically sort of clicking into, you know, 
okay, well, how are we going to uh, respond and deal with this? So, so the board had a teleconference immediately following the program and then it was a wild ride really for quite a period of time following that was all consuming. And mm. I take my hat off to the NTCA executive. You know, they're all volunteers. They're all busy. They're, they've all, you know, heavily involved in their own businesses and they gave up hundreds and hundreds of hours of their time in defence of the industry and the community and uh, defending their livelihoods and their and their community and they did an amazing job and you know we'd be on on hookups two and three and four times a day in the very early days and and it it reduced over time um but there was a yeah a really massive commitment and and you know things really started to play out and uh once the um initial shock of the ban and the realization that the trade had ceased immediately and of course there were tra- cattle stranded on boats on the water and in trucks and like it literally was instant the uh, secondary issue then became about what are we going to do with all these cattle in northern australia they don't have a market where are we going to send them um the uh the dry season was well and truly, um, you know, underway and feed was starting to reduce and, and we needed to find avenues to get, you know, to lighten the stocking rates and, and to make way for the next uh, flush of cattle. So, and prior to the, to the wet season, needed to get cattle off before the rain started. So a lot of cattle tended to head south. And, uh, and hence the impact on, on southern markets. And, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, people that understand the sort of the northern production system would understand that a lot of the cattle in the north aren't slaughter weight and aren't fit for purpose for a, a you know, a domestic processing animal. So, uh, often, you know, there, the, there wasn't an option for domestic processing. So it was really a matter of trying to find feed and, uh, and fodder and, uh, keeping, uh, so it became an animal welfare concern domestically. So a lot of work was spent on, uh, finding a home for these cattle in the, in, until we could, uh, get the markets reopened again. Through your role as a board member, you would have been across, you know, northern production systems and, and in all those discussions, you know, just immediately after the ban, understanding the implications, not just animal welfare, but financial for that part of the country. Did you have any idea of what the impact would mean for you and your fellow pastoralists in Central Australia? Because I can imagine all, all the media and everything was focused on producers that send cattle to live export. And I don't think there was any real focus on, and, and did anybody know? how hard it was going to hit people who had nothing to do with live export at all. No, I don't believe so. I, I, I don't think so. And I, I really have a, an intimate understanding of it now, obviously through the, the class action I've heard some harrowing stories and the impact on, on families, on relationships, on finances, you know, on people's lives has just been profound. And, you know, I look back on just even our own little family and, uh, and those sort of immediately in my community and, and the toll that it took on the board members, on the staff. So on people that sort of were at the coalface dealing with the day to day, it was relentless and it was ongoing. Yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a pretty grim, uh, chapter, I think, in, in our history. Uh, what a, you know, 
I, I, I hate to state the obvious, but yeah, like what a busy, horrible, I don't know. I don't know what adjective to use for that year, but you said, you know, as you said, you lost a family member. There was a separation. There was the live export ban. Then, you know, there's this whole transition of moving to town. Like I really think it could have gone one way or the other. I don't know how you didn't just end up in a heap. Like yeah. it, it could have been so easy to just, you know, and it's coming, it feels like it's coming from all angles, but I guess you can go one of two ways in those situations and luckily you yeah. managed to. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, I don't think it's unusual for people that have been brought up in the bush, you know, you just learn to dig deep and keep going. And, uh, you know, I wasn't on my own there. There were plenty that were a lot worse than me and having to, to, um, to do exactly the same thing. So it, we just got, uh, just got on with it. There was, you know, we were pretty well with our backs against the wall and was just phenomenal, the spirit. And that you draw energy from that and it, it helps, uh, for you to keep focused on what your job is and what you need to be doing. And there certainly wasn't any time to be falling apart. A couple of years after joining the NTCA or Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, and I'll refer to them as NTCA after this, you had the opportunity to become the CEO. Was that something you you wanted to go for or were you encouraged to apply? How did that all come about? Yeah, so it was uh, an interesting process. So the board asked me if I would consider applying for the CEO role. To be honest, my initial reaction was, gosh, I I don't think I'm ready for that. You know, it's often a, a pretty common response in women particularly when they're making decisions about career progression and uh, I've learned a lot since then about that and um, I wouldn't hesitate now. But then I was a little untested and uh, still had a young family and, yeah, so I went through any number of sort of scenarios in my mind as to the reasons why I shouldn't do it and uh, and – the time wasn't right, etc. And uh, a, a friend of mine, a wise old fella that's kicked around the bush for many years, uh, I talked it through with him and he said to me, uh, and he's got a couple of PhDs, and he said, you know, in his professional career, the time is never right. It's almost never right. You never get the alignment. You know, he said, just, you know, pin your ears back and go for it. That it was a great conversation because it just made me uh, reset my thinking and uh, he's absolutely right and I've, of course, learnt that since. So I was in an acting position for a little while and, uh, yeah, once I, you know, agreed to take on the role full time, of course, the sky didn't cave in. It just I just kept going and, and it was totally the right decision. It's interesting you bring up that uh, it sounded like a bit of imposter syndrome that, you know, you, and you said it's something common amongst women. I think I've read that somewhere and I, I was trying to remember, is it is it something that they defined by gender or was it just two different types of people? I think it might have been gender though. Like men will apply for something that they're not qualified for mm-hmm. and if they get it, they'll accept it and 
just be like, yeah, cool, whatever, fake it till you make it. Whereas women are more like we'll really look at it and go, oh, and and I guess self-select ourselves out of the process and go, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. Yeah, no, that's 100% correct. Uh, I spend a lot of time mentoring young professional upwardly mobile women now and we talk about it a lot and um, it, it's a fact. So women will think they need to be 100% ready and uh, have all their ducks in a row before they'll put themselves forward or um, consider themselves able. I'm generalising now, of course, but that's primarily how it has been. I think we're making progress, though. I think you know I'm seeing some really strong signs of young women, particularly, learning to back themselves and to put their hand up and and uh, and have a go. And uh, even if you know they're not ready, I, um, there's often you know depending on the work environment but if it's a supportive environment and they'll invest in professional development and allow you to learn and grow in the role then that's the sort of workplace I think uh, is really healthy for young women. Something that's brought up a lot in media about you whether it's a podcast or a magazine article or any form of media is that you were the first female CEO of the NTCA. How significant is that to you? Because I, I go back and forth on this when it comes to women in agriculture. Like there's definitely still, it's hard. Like there's definitely still a glass ceiling and there's definitely still people out there, both men and women that think men and women should have certain roles. But on the other hand, some people are like, Oh no, like it's, it's fine now. Or it's, you know, why are we still making a big deal about it? You know, we should just head down, bum up and move on. And I can't, I kind of teeter between the two. So, I know you get asked this question, you know, yeah. asked about the fact that you were a female, the first female. What's your take on that? Yeah. So at the time, it wasn't uh, a thing for me because I didn't, I don't really see myself any differently. And I've come from an environment where women make up 50% of the industry. And, you know, there are times, of course, when I was a kid that I felt I had to work a bit harder, perhaps, but, um, you know, uh, you, you are sure of your position and it's very much a partnership. So um, the first female CEO um, situation was really just, you know, I didn't really consider it to be um, anything too special, but I've reflected on it since and there's definitely, you know, Gendered subjugation is definitely still, it does exist. There's no question about that. But what I've observed over time is that workplaces are getting much better, not just the, the humans, um, single sort of individuals, but collectively as a whole culture, cultures are much more positive and women increasingly are playing senior roles, you know, in policy development. Um, we're seeing more and more women into the parliament. Um, and, Still got a little way to go in business though. We're, you know, we're a long, long way off. I, I, I forget the statistic now, um, on ASX boards, but it's very, very low. So not enough in the corporate world around the board table at, at that level. And we could do a, uh, a lot better at, at CEO level, but I, it's definitely improving. And I think, um, the next decade or so we'll really see that, um, those numbers start to turn around. I'd love to dig into that and find out. I'm, I'm get, I feel like there would be multiple root causes, you know, like you said that, um, I love how articulate you were. I was like, oh, you know, there's men and women who think that women should have roles and you're like, gendered subjugation, sub, I'm not even going to try to say that word. I know what it is though. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I was thinking. But 
there we go. One of us is more articulate than the other. <laughs> but also that coming back to that idea of how many women are actually putting their hands up for those roles or applying to be on. So I can see so many things happen and and then you want to make sure that you're there because you're the best fit. Sometimes I hear in politics like, oh, we, we need more women on the front bench and blah, blah. And I just think I don't care if you have equal parts men or women on the front bench or the back bench, whatever. I want whoever's best to look after that portfolio. Yeah. So it's yeah, a- I still uh, I believe in that. Also, I, I do believe in that. I, I'm not a big fan of um, tokenistic gestures yeah. and sometimes referred to as a golden petticoat. You know, and um, I would never want to be considered a token female on any role that I'm a part of. And uh, in fact, if I thought I was, well, I wouldn't be a part of yeah. it. It's, it's very simple, and I and I think most women um, are like that. There is a school of thought that if uh, if that is the offering that you take it and then prove yourself and look that might be the case but that's probably a cultural environment that you may not necessarily want to be in yeah so I I still am a firm believer of um, giving people a go and uh, and encouraging young women particularly and and I've found support and encouragement a little bit of that can go a long way in the decision making and and the roles that women will consider and have a go at really is such a nuanced area and I guess you've got to take it on a case-by-case basis and each each case kind of dig around and see what's going on here and and kind of work from there I guess. With your role as CEO, that also required you to move up to Darwin, didn't it? Yes, it did. How's that? Because it's very different. I mean, Udnadatta, Alice Springs, similar, different country, but kind of still a one big kind of community sort of very similar. Darwin's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. There's a lot more traffic. Yeah. Well, there's that. And also, you know, the weather was a consideration and a major upheaval for our family. So, you know, having uh, the boys had come from homeschooling and um, into a sort of school environment in the big smoke. So there was a a transition for all of us. Um, And I'd been really blessed with um, having my mum as part of sort of our family. Um, My dad passed away um, some years beforehand. And yeah, um, my parents were, you know, they were soulmates and been together for many, many, many years. And mum just wasn't ready to uh, live by herself. So you know, she joined our family and it was um, just, it was such a marvellous thing for all of us, I think. And uh, so I was really fortunate in having the, her, the, her support as well. She moved up with us and, uh, yeah, it, it really enabled me to um, put my attention into, you know, things when I needed to and um, but also be a mum and try and do the school pickups and drop-offs. But if I, if I couldn't make it, well, I had mum there backing me up. Did you find yourself homesick for Central Australia? Yeah, and I still do. I still consider myself, I mean, I'm a Territorian of 40 plus years, but I still have very strong connection to the centre, still have a home base there and the business is still there and one of the boys is still there. So, um, you know, Central Australia will always be really dear to my heart. Within your time as CEO, I suppose one of the, the or the biggest I guess a battle for you to take on was the class action of the live export ban. We have listeners all across the country and the world actually. And, and while this is a rural podcast, so many of them are not 
in the real industry. So could you just, in a nutshell, explain what the, the class action is? Yeah, so in 2014, we filed uh, a class action against the Commonwealth and uh, misfeasance in public office against the Minister of the Crown. So essentially, um, our view was that the Minister didn't have the legal authority to make the decision that he made that caused the devastation and destruction across Northern Australia. And we'd spent quite a lot of time in um, on the case, we'd had a neutral evaluation undertaken by a retired judge and he determined that um, should we go to court, we had greater than meaningful prospects of success and in a legal sense, that means something. And at the very minimum, it should have been enough to bring the Commonwealth to the table to have a conversation with us. Uh, however, there were political overlays um, with this case and, and uh, it was co- it's complex. And of course, Miss against a Minister of the Crown has never been proven before in a court of law, so an incredibly high bar to prove liability. We set about uh, on a journey supported by, you know, you always need a backer. So Australian Farmers Fighting Fund, which um, has been in place for many years, is, is set up to uh, defend matters of, of a precedent nature. So we fit it into that category. So through the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association membership of uh, the National Farmers Federation, we were able to gain access to that fund. And, uh, and thankfully they, they stuck with us right through to the very end. And it, it was quite the process. And you know, there weren't too many legal folk that I've spoken to over the years that thought we had a hope in hell of winning. Um, we had a really great legal team, very committed, very dedicated, and they still are. And, uh, and they've become, you know, friends and confidants and a shoulder to cry on to I think many people that have, are members of the class action. So essentially, um, it's, uh, seeking compensation for detriment caused as a result of a decision by government. It essentially wiped out an industry overnight. And where is that sitting at the moment? Yeah, so um, it took a long, long time, filed in October, I think it was, of 2014, and uh, it took to June of 20, gosh, now you're testing me, 2021 for, um, for the judgment. And it's a landmark ruling and, and the judge ruled in our favour and uh, – so that was um, that was a, a major a milestone, a, a fantastic day for us and particularly the Brett family and um, who were the lead applicants in the case. You always need a lead applicant to uh, prosecute the argument. Um, since that time, um, where we've been back and forth, and we're still um, undertaking a court process now um, to negotiate what the quantum, so what the, the figure is going to be. And it's a highly complex and technical argument that we're uh, in the middle of now between um, between our legal team and the, and the government. So there's still a lot of work to do uh, and I'm really sad to say that um, I, I think the average uh, punter that's been close to this thought that you know, that compensation would start to flow soon after and, of course, that's our hope. But um, we're holding our line and we think that the initial offer that um, government um, put on the table 
Interestingly enough, it's uh, the figures become public. It's uh, found its way into the media somehow, um, some two hundred odd million dollars, and uh, yeah, that's offensive. So <laughs> yeah, we're not of a view to accept that. Um, I'm uh, I'm not as close to the case now as I was um, for various reasons, but they're still working very hard on on uh, sorting out you know what the um, compensation and the quantum's going to be. You certainly came into these roles as executive officer and then chief executive officer in, you know, while the ban lasted, I think, what was it, a month, you know, the fallout went on for years. And I, I don't know, I guess once the media coverage stopped, it kind of left a lot of people's, um, you know, it was just out in the periphery, something they happened one day, except for those obviously involved. I think that's what really is when you became quite, prominent and a a public figure in our industry and since then you've become a public figure in Australia not you know with outside of agriculture what's that been like for you because you know one day you were Tracy mum wife pilot you know business owner and now you're like Tracy Hayes um yeah I'm not really too sure how to answer that it it's just been an evolution over time as my careers progressed and developed and you know raised the fa- raised a family and um sort of my you know when I think about myself and and the way I outwardly project myself I first and foremost in every time I think of myself as a mum that's what's important um the corporate careers kind of come along second to that uh so I, by definition, um, an introvert and, um, it's so often I've found myself in, you know, having to step into an area that I'm well and truly outside my comfort zone. And, uh, you know, talking about yourself is not easy. And, uh, as you mentioned before, I've done a few podcasts now and often in the media and it's, it's not my, uh, comfortable space to be, but I do enjoy, um, um, being a part of a community and, and if I can, you know, contribute to particularly, um, empowering young people to consider a career in agriculture and, and, uh, and have a go at the, the corporate world, well, I, you know, that's got to be positive, I think. Yeah. I just, it must have, it must just be like, it looks like you've taken it in your stride. But when I was reflecting back on it, obviously from the outside and somebody who doesn't know all the ins and outs, you know, it's not like you ever intended for this to happen and but when you do step into a role like that in a time like that and you become much more visible to the public you know I'm sure you would have been known within industry and NTCA beforehand but then you become known within like the whole cattle industry and and when you are in such a that a that kind of a position in that kind of environment and you're also so visible then that's when you also open yourself up to people's opinions and criticism and and it's not like you were like I want to go and be a politician and always in front of the media and and um or an influencer or famous or anything but you kind of are and it's it's funny on the way when I when I asked you to do this podcast and you wrote back and said yes my first response was oh crap yeah. Um, I was like, oh, damn it. Now I have to go and actually record it with her. And I was like, it's okay. It's just Luke's mum. It's just Luke's mum. Just <laughs> funny why, how you also said that you think of yourself first and foremost as a mum. Because to me, I'm like, Tracy Hayes is a boss lady. Like she's so amazing and I'm so intimidated. Um, oh, goodness. I know. And then when you, like you've said a few things and I'm like, she knows me. Well, she knows things about me. And I'm like, 
what it's, yeah anyway so i'm like it's just luke's mom but you i don't i want i don't know how much you guys what an influence you are for so many people yeah, well, I certainly don't see myself that way, and uh, and I'm sure my boys don't see me that way either. <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah, and that's just the way I prefer. I don't have a, you know, I'm not re- not a social media sort of guru or influencer. From time to time, I pop something up, and often it's, you know, a bragging post about my kids, which is very annoying for for the boys from time to time. But yeah, I think it's you know, from my perspective. Uh, it's important to just, um, you know, stay focused on what your role is and, and what you're there to do and, and um, try not to get too distracted by, you know, you talked before about negative comments and, and um, you know, criticism and that type of thing. And, look, that just that's just the world that we live in today, particularly with news cycles and any number of things. And, and I think if you really believe in what you're doing and you've got a strong value alignment to the industries or the entities that you're involved in it makes it a hell of a lot easier it's a lot more defensible you put your sort of shoulder to the wheel or your heart in the job and yeah it's I I think it's um well that's sort of how I found it works best for me it keeps me energized and keeps me focused because I sort of believe in what I'm doing. I think that philosophy that you've just shared demonstrates why you are such a good role model for so many people because you're there to do like you said to do your job and it's not self-serving and I think when we look at you or I say we and you know me and whoever else you can see that it's not like you know you see politicians or whoever else you know people that are there to kind of do a job and I use the bunny mark the little bunny ears here quotation marks but you can tell they're also very there's like a lot of ego at play whereas the way you conduct yourself is yeah but you've and I think that's also what's helped you become such a figure as well though because people really like that and it's funny I actually had joked around with Luke saying oh I'm gonna call your episode Luke Hayes Tracy Hayes's son and I he was like yep that's how everyone knows us like so I, I'm always thinking about calling this podcast Tracy Hayes, Luke Hayes' mum. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure that'll make his day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, your, your point's a good one about, I think, leadership styles and how people conduct themselves and ego. And I think if you're in a leadership position and you find yourself sort of behaving in those ways, it generally isn't healthy, it's generally not sustainable and it generally doesn't end well. And, uh, and I think it's important to stay as grounded as you possibly can be regardless of whether you're seen as successful or not successful because, you know, it's uh, you'll have your days where, you know, you could have done things better and you could have said things better and you perhaps could have approached a problem a little differently. So, you know, it's the it's really important you don't allow yourself to get ahead of yourself and um, stay true to your roots and who you are as a as a person and um, and having a a wonderful family, pretty tight knit bunch uh, is the best grounding um, I think ever. Speaking of leadership roles, you sit on a number of boards, committees, councils, all those wonderful things, and one of your most recent. Uh, appointments is as the chair of the national RFDS board, or I guess they call it the feder- the federation. federation board. So I just, it's amazing the trajectory that you've gone on. I just think it's like, like that butterfly effect. One thing happens and then how things go. And what I wanted to 
there's a lot we haven't spoken about in this podcast. And uh, I, I noticed with some of the other media around you, it kind of really focuses and, and for good reason on you've also been, it's been a rough trot. I'd say like the last, well, it'll be over 10 years now. You had a, a pretty rough trot or that, that's putting it lightly. That's a euphemism. I, I think we touched on it one part very briefly in this episode, which is when your father-in-law passed away. You also, like, I just, I just thought if people want to hear it because you've been so forthcoming that I, I encourage people to go listen to the Mum's Gone Troppo episode that you did. I just didn't want to make you go through all that again. Um, but for people who's, you know, as they've been listening to your story, if this is their first time hearing it, you know, father-in-law passed away, your ex-husband passed away. He also had a, a battle with cancer. There's, uh, a moment where one of your children got really sick and then Luke's told me that you guys, that they put you all through hell anyway and all sorts of things. So you've, there's been so much, but I was like, okay, how can I look at this through a different lens? Also wary that there's more to you than that, not to uh, not acknowledge it and dismiss it at all. But what I see when I, when I've kind of read all these things about you and bits and pieces I hear is that what comes out to me is the, uh, adaptability that you've had, like you've had all these changes in your life and many of them not by choice, things have just happened, but you've kind of just rolled with the punches and made, I know this is going to sound so uh, um, basic, like as a, as an analogy, but made lemonade out of lemons, you know, you've, mm. you've really been able to make the most of all these horrible situations and I think that's incredible. Yeah, I think uh, there's no doubt trauma and tragedy has been a constant companion for our family for, yeah, it's probably a decade and uh, a lot of loss in so many ways, more ways than one if I'm honest. And I think what's been, I guess, our saviour is staying unified and and tied as a as a family unit supporting one another and navigating your way through grief and um you know there's a lot of discussion about PTSD and and uh and you know I can identify signs of that in in people now having um seen the impact that so much loss can have particularly on young people and and you know the Boys are all, have all been at various stages of, of development and uh, when different things have happened and really what we've sought to do is, is to, um, try and look past, you know, when it sort of seems to have happened a few times now, it's like, gosh, here we go again and uh, how are we going to survive this? How are we going to get through this and how are we going to dig deep as a family? You know, I've just, I guess I'm taking a moment to recognize that you know, working through a process of grief and recovery is, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a process. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's ongoing. And I suspect as a family unit, we'll be continuing to work on that for many, many years to come. And, you know, look at society and the community around me and there's so much of it now. And yeah, so, you know, from my perspective, trying to maintain some sort of positive, frame I suppose for the way we see the world you know it's um it I don't want to use any cliches but you know at the end of the day it's pretty good and we live in an amazing place and trying to find a moment to remind ourselves of that 
really what we're here for. And yeah, and accepting that curveballs probably up until I was in my thir- mid thirties, I thought that, you know, our trajectory was our, you know, our path. And so I, I guess now I've realized that a curveball can come at any moment. And it can hit as hard and fast as it does. And uh, sometimes it's a tennis ball. Sometimes it's a cricket ball. And yeah, so you adjust your approach and response accordingly. So I think now that we've sort of accepted the fact that that can and does happen, we uh, really focused, I think, on a future, hopefully, where we've had our, you know, touch wood as I say that. But yeah, I mean, it, we, it's just life, I think. It's so remarkable to hear that how you've, how you've taken this in your stride. And I, I also understand that's very much from an outside perspective looking in. Obviously, I don't see the times where I'm sure you have days where, you know, everyone's a mess and you're like, why does this keep happening? I just think it's so admirable that with all these things, whether it's something as, as massive as losing a person or even honestly just, you know, the, the end of a marriage and that whole having to move to town, you know, you wanted to, I'm sure, like you said, at one point you thought you knew where your life was going and that would have involved being on the land forever. And I know many people that have had to leave all sorts of different situations and it can be something really hard to move on from. Like say the parents have sold the farm and then, you know, they're like, Oh, I thought that was going to be mine one day or whatever. And, and it can eat away at people for, because when that, that change, change is hard, but when change is forced upon you and it's not something that you've gone out and saw, it can be so hard to find closure with. So I just, I wanted to sort of frame this conversation in a little bit of a different light in that, it's the way you've you've carried yourself and and your and the way your family's handled everything rather than focus on the actual trauma but I also didn't want to not acknowledge it because obviously it's quite significant and I was I was thinking again I, I think I like to use like analogies and little things I was like you know you guys haven't just survived you've thrived and that's so evident from the way you've been in our industry and then now like you're on all these very like your career is just incredible I do want to ask you before I wrap up one question I was like oh you know everything is quite serious and I was like okay besides from the fact that you've um dabbled in hairdressing what do you like to do for fun what makes Tracy like what's your thing Hmm, that's a good question like are you a closet roller skater or (laughs) no no I'm not salsa dancer um Look, I do love dancing and uh, my other half now, Luke Bowen, he's a bit of a jiver. So oh, I can see yeah, that. We, we do like dancing at whatever, um, you know, the occasion might be. But, yeah, look, I think any spare time I have, you know, I don't want this to sound too wanky, but, you know, I try and I put it into the boys. You know, they're still – youngest is 18 and uh, we, we still, as a family, have – a lot of sort of exciting things that, you know, we'd like, we're working towards together, I think, and, and like to achieve. And, you know, it's, you don't just stop being a parent when your kids turn 18. It, it's an ongoing thing. And, you know, I genuinely, um, enjoy being a part of their lives and contributing to what they're up to. So there's not a huge amount of time to be a rollerblader even though, you know, it would be a lot of fun. And uh, I do tend to get enjoyment out of, you know, nose in a book. I do enjoy reading. That's probably about as thrilling as it gets. 
is having a good book and a quiet time and and uh, being out of phone range is also has a lot of appeal. Yeah, um, so I uh, have a bit of work to do on keeping on top of emails and text messages and whatnot like most busy executives. Yeah, so to me uh, an ideal bit of downtime is you know, when the boys are around and we all chuff down to the sailing club for, for a, you know, you've got your toes in the grass and enjoying a good steak by the beach and it's a lovely dry season evening. I, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. Brilliant. I'm going to have to get you back for another podcast one day. Just, I, I love to pick the brains of people who, from my perspective, are successful and are in these roles because it can be so, particularly like you're on so many boards and committees, like you're very busy. And so, you know, how do you keep yourself grounded and not from burning out? And, and I just love to get you though, the little mindsets and habits of, of these people. So you'll hear from me again. Don't delete my number. <laughs> Look forward to it, Steph. <laughs> and so final question is, looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Uh, I think um, being opportunity ready, having an open mind to, you know, not be so certain that, you know, your life plan is your life plan, that it most likely isn't going to pan out as you think. So, you know, the, the takeaway for me is being ready to pivot. So that means investing in yourself, whether it be just being mentally prepared and not just thinking that you, the mundane day-to-day of life is how it's always going to be because you're just never really too sure. So being opportunity ready is important and that doesn't just mean in a professional sense, it's in any number of ways that you approach your day. So I, I think looking at it through that lens, is this an opportunity? Do I need to think about that? Is it not? Or I'll let that one pass me by. But if you're not ready for it, you can't consider it and something you just might miss a, a great opportunity for yourself or your family.